Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Rural Retro Smackdown review here on Rogue Titans. I'm your usual host, Colin Clyde. We're here to talk about the March 16th, 2000 episode of Smackdown. We're three episodes away, including this one, from WrestleMania 2000. And if I was going to plan anything wise, you're listening to this WrestleMania Sunday. So isn't it funny how things work out? I'm joined once again by a man still out to prove himself as my co-host. It's Samuel Preston. How are you, Sam? I'm not too bad, not too bad at all. I feel this is kind of like when you're working um, on a job-by-job basis and you're feeling to yourself, do you know, I'm not sure if I really want to do this shift, but you know if you say no, you may never get invited back again. So this is the agency life of radio work. So uh, I want to thank you for bringing me back for this uh, episode that I've so been looking forward to. What a glowing endorsement of this (laughs) podcast that was. <laughs> yes, it's like agency work in a warehouse, except this one I get to not wear clothes whilst I'm doing it. I'm going to try and get that image in my mind. I've got a cookie next to me. I'm going to have to throw it in the bin. <laughs> just like, just sm- smooth, throw it in, and just banish it from your memory. A bit like Mae Young's puppies at the Royal Rumble. <laughs> but. The last couple of weeks we've been dealing with Shane and Stephanie and Triple H and the big show, all this drama leading into WrestleMania. And if you don't like drama related to people called McMahon, oh, believe you me, this episode and the next couple of episodes, that's getting ramped up to 11. Uh, I think 11 underwhel- underrates the level that we're going to be aiming for. I think 27 might be more appropriate, um, which is almost as many times as a McMahon or a Helmsy appeared in this episode. Sam knows as well, he was marking it down uh, on a little clicker every time he's seen him at man. There they are again. There they are again. Just he just why have I got this clicking noise in the back of me, uh, in the back of my head? Is that basically just like grasshoppers outside making as much noise as possible? And it turns out, no, that's just another Helmsley for your day. <laughs> and all this man uh, nonsense really got turned up on Raw. Uh, before this sat down and I'll run through it as I often do. Also we got a recap of uh, The Rock and Rikishi getting beaten up from the previous SmackDown where I said all hope was lost. And they really emphasize in this promo and TR references it at least twenty times per segment. But the Rock is apparently desperate now and desperate men do desperate things and all that. Uh Stephanie and Triple H open raw because of course they do when they're into by Shane in the big show. And there's just mo- going on and on, and I do mean on and on, about how they took out The Rock, and they're like, you know, you don't have to challenge me for the title of WrestleMania, you could have went for any title, you could have went after the European title, you could have tried and slimmed down a bit, gone after the light heavyweight title and then they promised that now that the main event is set for WrestleMania that they're going to just move on to humiliating The Rock, and they bring out The Rock's WrestleMania opponents the Twin Towers it's too short, people. It's too dwarf. Dressed in suits. The Rock is going to face in a handicap match and then they start joking about all sorts of stipulations they can add. You know, they say, we can make this a handicap evening gown match. And it's the excuse for King and for the heels to make all sorts of short jokes. You know, there's no, there's no small task for The Rock at WrestleMania. <laughs> 
uh, as you can imagine, I had um, uh, little appreciation for this segment, um, which is the closest I'm going to get to a uh, Joey the King Lawler moment. Um, even just watching the recap, I was thinking to myself, this looks so painful. I love... Um, I love the fact that they show how much originality they have in that they refer to them as the twin towers because, you know, they don't want to hurt themselves too much coming up with something original for a one-off joke segment. But um, <laughs> it was completely unsurprising. I was almost expecting John Morrison and The Miz to bring out their own draws as well in anticipation of another WrestleMania coming. It was just a very meh... Um, segment i can imagine on even just from the recap so this is one of the few times where i was glad that you did the watching i just do the reacting <laughs> <laughs> uh, i tell you there, were no, there was no shortage of terrible jokes in this segment i really i really looked down on the whole event and i imagine if a segment like this are going to get cut once the peacock people get a, a look at it and you know, I got excited about when they said the Twin Towers were coming out because I thought Bossman's still on the roster and I know the guy who played Akeem Clash One Man Gang still alive because he appears in next year's gimmick battle royale. Like, oh, those two versus the Rock, I wouldn't mind seeing. Mm. And no, it was a trap. I, I should never get my hopes up. Not, not when you're watching a Helmsley McMahon um, segment. If you get your hopes up, um, they're just going to be dashed down very shortly. So it's just, it's not worth, it's not worth the pain. Don't do it to yourself. Yeah. And The Rock comes out to help save us from this misery. And he says, no, he reminds me getting beaten up. You'll get back up if he's you know, jumped by McMahon's and Elmsley and the big show. But he draws the line at being embarrassed. So he makes one last challenge. He says it'll be the big show versus The Rock in the main event. If The Rock wins, he goes to WrestleMania. And if I lose, you'll never see me again. You'll chase me out of this company the same way you did. To Mick Foley, and so they accept. And through the night, they really hype up. Is this the last time we're going to see The Rock on WWF TV? Kevin Kelly and Michael Cole are interviewing wrestlers. They interview Ivory, the Godfather. They ask the headbangers what they think, because I was really wanting to know what the headbangers thought this whole situation. <laughs> and we also had uh, DX Triple H was, did get a match on the show where he, along with X Pac and Road Dog, uh, took on Tukul and Rikishi. Uh, Xbox hit Rikishi with a ring bell for the win after a definitely a distraction but Scottie Joey did manage to hit Triple H with a one which was nice to see uh, but then we get to the main event itself and Shane makes himself the special guest referee he's doing fast counts he's obviously being biased towards the big show or in favour of the big show he takes a chair away from The Rock but he gets knocked down Earl Herner comes out The Rock has the big show where he wants him but then Shane pulls Ebner at the ring while stopping from curtain because he's the official ref. He goes back and he's got to hit the rock wear chair. And then a limo is in the parking lot, a typical staple of the attitude. There's a limo, but who's inside it? And it's usually McMahon. And on this occasion, it was a McMahon. It was Vince McMahon, damn it. Who we haven't seen since the Raw after Armageddon 99, who gets a massive pop when he appears. JR's going mental. Stephanie and Triple H are still in their locker and they run. And there's different camera angles, the way it's cut together. Vince is walking down one corridor, Triple H is walking down another. They eventually feeds up, Triple H is yelling at him, and Vince just punches him in the face and knocks him on his ass. Vince then comes out, hits his own son with a chair. He rips the 
referee shirt off of Shane, puts it on himself, it's inside out, but it doesn't matter. Rocket's a rock bomb, Vince makes the count, the rock is going to WrestleMania. Oh, I can I can only imagine the insanity of watching that live. And it's definitely the sort of segment that makes you appreciate how good um, it used to be watching these live events unveil where you really had no idea what could possibly happen. Um, I think the fact that Vince McMahon appears after, well, four months really by this point and is so hugely cheered is, is a really good, is a really good um, moment. And I like the fact that it, that this almost builds upon so much history that has occurred. You have the um, Vince McMahon Triple H angle that occurred at Armageddon and the fact that his return is such a big deal because of why he's been away. You've got the references back to Mick Foley being ran out of the WWF, which I thought was again, another really good way of pulling the history all together. Um, it was this, despite the fact that the beginning of the initial segment of the show uh, with the Twin Towers was a little bit painful, the work put in with Rock's challenge, the match itself, and Vince's return is really is actually really good television. Um, it gets you really heavily invested. Deep down, you know that the chances of the Rock leaving WWF were non-existent because uh, he hadn't yet appeared as a scorpion. So therefore there's no chance that he had history or anywhere you could go after this, but the way that they made you think, how could he do it was fantastic. It was all these close moments or these uh, inevitable odds. And I imagine some people were hoping someone like Stone Cold Steve Austin would come out or something like that. But I think it did make more sense. It being Vince McMahon because it's a case of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So Vince McMahon coming out to this huge pop and being the only person with the amount of control and power to be able to help the rock win and get that actual opportunity makes the most sense as well. So from storytelling purposes, this just this recap made it come across really well. Um, the way that it made the rock look very impressive in battling against all these odds um, was also really good. And I remember watching this SmackDown Live when I was a child, and I didn't know much about Vince McMahon at the time, and seeing the way that he interacted and got involved, even I was shocked. That's how well done the moment was. Someone who was less familiar with Vince McMahon, only really clips that had been shown on television when when referring back to him, even I was invested as a 10-year-old watching this thinking, oh my God, what's going to happen next? And that, to me, is a really good example of how good the storytelling was. So, mm-hmm. fair play, excellent work. Yeah, I mean, it was a painful thing to sit through at the start, but they ended it as hot as they could be. And yeah, the fact that Vince is back is definitely in Triple H assumed power because Shane and Vince just left uh, the building after Armageddon. And so, obviously, by proxy, like, she's the she's the man, and Triple H by extension is with her. So, they both had the most power in the company. And then Shane came back, they were kind of sharing the power, both making matches for each other uh, for like Big Show and Triple H respectively and then Vince is here he like basically succeeds everybody and so even if they try to change the situation say no The Rock like you not doing the ref that doesn't count Vince can say well I'm Vince McMahon so if I say The Rock's in the main event of Wrestlemania The Rock's in the main event and it was interesting seeing back it does get annoying for the next year or so because Shane and Vince both come out to no chance 
So there is sometimes a point where I don't know whether or not to pop yet because you know, Shane, they hate Shane, but they like Vince right now. So they're like, do we pop? Oh, no, it's the McMahon we don't like. Oh, oh, oh yeah, that's Vince. And people will say it, but the McMahon's being everywhere. But like when they come out and get popped like this, like when Vince does go away for a little while, then it does feel like the McMahon's do draw eyes and they do like help create big moments for the show. And mm-hmm. so when they're getting these kind of reactions, you go with what's working and clearly the McMahon's to an extent were working. I agree. Um, at the time, the way they um, spaced out these reveals, like when Shane returned as uh, helping the big show, being a massive heel, he helped generate a lot more heat for the big show, as we've mentioned in previous weeks. Uh, he is real positive impact upon the show because he has this smarmy attitude and this like um uh rich kid with a spoiled spoon up his ass style that makes fans uh, get annoyed at him whereas like vince mcmahon by spacing it out even longer and having him come out the last time you saw him was um almost with his tail between his legs due to what triple h and um stephanie had done and the fact that the first action he does is knock triple h out who is the biggest mm-hmm. heel at that point, instantly makes Vince McMahon a babyface in the eyes of the fans. It's that old chestnut of getting the people that are most hated and putting anyone against them by proxy become a favourite. So that is really clever booking. And it, it's, it, it's all these positives just from this recap, which you're thinking, oh, this is fantastic, really fantastic. And it gives you a lot of hope. And then the show begins. So... <laughs> Yeah. They really, really should have had the ring announcer come and say the following in-ring segment is scheduled for 20 minutes. <laughs> like, I can chant 20 minutes. Because I literally put over 20 minutes in all caps at the end of my notes. Because this, as much as, as happy as I was to see Vince back, I, this went on. Because Shane starts the show alongside a big show. And he talks about a crime was committed on Raw. Like when Big Show was screwed out of the match for The Rock, he says, I bet you all think it's okay for someone like Vince McMahon to come in and hit his own son, his own flesh and blood with a steel chair. But then he tries to you know, ruin everybody's good times by saying, like, yeah, we said that The Rock would get into the main event of WrestleMania if he won. We didn't say that meant that The Big Show was out of the main event. So he announces officially it's going to be The Rock versus Big Show versus Triple H which is basically what it's felt like the last two weeks at least. So there's no real change in that regard. But then Triple H comes out and basically Triple H realises like, well, I've, I knew I had to face out Mania, but it was they were working because they had, together because they had to call him in the role, but now Triple H is basically out here with an attitude of, I don't have to be nice to you anymore, so I'm just going to blatantly say that you're not in my league, you can't beat me. He gets in Shane's face. Shane again makes slick comments towards Stephanie. And then out comes Vince, I thought, to save the segment, but no, he just made the whole thing longer. And he does give a decent explanation, because I remember, and I remember when I was younger, I hadn't seen Mania 2000, but I got this uh, thing, it was uh, around 2009, an annual, a WrestleMania annual, and it gave you the results of every WrestleMania up until that point. And I just saw the main event of Mania and seeing that the Vince was in the Rock's corner. And I even, and for years I thought like, why would the Vince, Vince and The Rock ever be here? Because I also at the same time had a tape of King of the Ring where Rock and Vince are at odds. So it always felt weird to me. But Vince gives a great explanation 
where he talks about basically how she, uh, Stephanie Trevlitz at Sicily have uh, been running the company since he's been gone. It's kind of similar to what Shane's motivation was when he came back in 2016. About how basically they're trying to run his company into the ground. They've, I, they've gotten rid of Mick Foley, one of the most popular guys they had. Then they try to get rid of one of their other most popular stars, The Rock. And he said that's just not good for business. But The Rock and the main event of WrestleMania, that is good for business. And apparently it was because we're in the same... There were reports of even though WrestleMania was selling decent numbers with the tickets because WF is hot at this time, there was a, a, a noticeable boost once The Rock was officially added to the main event. And uh, Vince announces that he's going to be in The Rock's corner. And they're all setting up matches for later on where it's going to be Rock versus Kane, Big Show versus Rikishi. And then randomly, uh, Vince makes it Triple H versus The Godfather because, you know, Stephanie will feel comfortable in The Godfather, and maybe she can take a ride on the whole train. So now even Vince is getting in and calling his daughter a slut. <laughs> oh, God. This was, um, like you said, this was a very long, long segment. Um, you, could, it, you, could, you could feel a lot of um, work being done on it. And, you know, God, God forbid a wrestling, a wrestling show doesn't begin with people talking. Um, I think the... <laughs> it's quite interesting seeing the fans being happy about the fact that Vince McMahon beat the crap out of his son, considering that less uh, about a year later, it would be the opposite way around, which shows like how quickly this can flip flop back and forth. Um, what I found really fascinating is that I don't know whether you probably have heard of this uh, possibly, but I remember reading about how suppo- uh, supposedly the previous year at WrestleMania 15, there had been discussions of a triple threat match between mm-hmm. Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock and Mankind, building upon the rivalry that had occurred between The Rock and Mankind and also the fact that Stone Cold Steve Austin was the big baby face and was feuding with The Rock as well, which at the time made a lot of made a lot of sense um and supposedly that it was kiboshed and uh because uh, according to Shawn michaels at the time i think it was he said a wrestlemania main event has to be one-on-one and now a year later when it seems less obvious that a triple threat match should have been organized they've been able to work it just enough to create the a scenario where it makes sense they finally get their triple threat match at wrestlemania where they get to see the big show triple h and the rock face one another i mean i still would have preferred austin rock mankind as a wrestlemania main event and this is it would end up this would end up just being a repeat of what had already occurred at Survivor Series the previous year with Big Show, Triple H, and The Rock. So, and I, I don't know whether the match itself was going to be the big pull or whether it was just the fact that The Rock was finally involved in it. Um, I was a little bit surprised that Triple H was so accepting towards the triple threat, but as we saw, that was because he was adamant that he wasn't going to lose. The only chance the other two had was to beat each other. Um, uh, which obviously led to Vince coming out and lambasting them both. And I I like the fact that he mentions that it's bad for business. It's terrible uh, business decisions because then that, that gives sense to what he's doing. It's within his character because whether he's good or bad, the one thing that the two things that usually drive him most are very simple. Um, anybody against his family and anybody who is ruining his business and then in this situation, 
it's the family ruining his business, which is why he's decided to come back and basically say, I'm taking over, I'm bringing it back into um, into less madness because you lot are just um, outtakes from the Jerry Springer show and he's going to save everything. Um, so yes, all of these character moments are making sense, which I'm enjoying. Is a legitimate reason for why Vince McMahon would back um, The Rock at WrestleMania. What's curious as well is watching the difference between the three McMahons during this segment because Vince McMahon is fantastic on the microphone. You notice that when he's like building up to the big line about Stephanie getting a ride on the whole train. His timing <laughs> is really good. Shane isn't as good, but he's still pretty good in that he's very good at generating heat. Uh, he's got a natural element upon the um on the microphone which uh, the crowd can respond to and stephanie is still learning she's got some moments where she's strong she's got some others where she's a bit weak and it, I, I found it quite interesting watching the difference between the three and it brings it into sharper into focus when you see the differences between them um the idea of picking the godfather to face um triple h definitely feels like it's just or wouldn't it be funny? Like, there's no legitimate <laughs> reasoning behind it. Um, but they made the decision. Overall, it was an okay segment that could have been compressed into probably 10, 12 minutes instead of 20. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, there also, the differences between McMahon's promo style becomes even more of a contrast than they ever they had Buddy Linda into the equation. Look like the bloody rock at this stage, and oh, um, and looking at the the trouble that I do, I'm aware of the uh, the situation that you were talking about with uh, Shawn Michaels and the whole thing about the rest of me and fifteen triple set. That would have probably made a lot more sense at the time, more so than like at SummerSlam when they had that other triple set of Mankind, Austin, and Triple H. It was only done allegedly because of not wanting to have Triple H win uh, because Austin didn't want to lose them and. Whereas the one at May 15 would have been a lot more sense given how involved Mankind was right up until like a few weeks before mm-hmm. the event. And like, it's ironic that Shawn Michaels played a part of it, part in it, when a few years later, 2004, when he injects himself into what rightfully should have been because he won the Rumble, Ben Wall versus Triple H for the world title. And then he injects himself into it because he's got unfinished business with Triple H. And I'm not complaining because that match was excellent, but you know, pot kettle, Shawn. And then even this year. <laughs> Even this year, we're talking about it tonight, uh, as you're listening to this, WrestleMania 37 Night 2, similar to bloody was, and we've got a triple threat in the main event when it probably, well, some states shouldn't have been. I was against it first, but I'm more okay with it now. Roman Reigns versus Edge versus Daniel Bryan. So it's weird how more common triple threat matches that may not have become. And I think this triple threat would have been okay, actually, because I think they've been building to it as if it's a triple threat for the last few weeks, so it would have been more of the same that we've been seeing the last few weeks of Rock basically having to overcome all the odds that Big Show, Triple H, and McMahon's have been thrown at him, and now he's got Vince in his, his corner. And actually, now I think about it, I know I didn't know this at the time, but I think actually when you think about it, now knowing like what I know now about wrestling, uh, it does make a lot more sense with Vince being in the Rock's corner, given that Rock and Vince haven't had that much time being at odds at this stage. Like, you know, there's a time where Vince said he hates the Rock because he hates the people and by extension the people's champion, but then it's the virus series, they real. oh, that was all a ruse and the Rock's the corporate champion and the Rock and Vince were 
side by side for a long time with the Rock Athletic Corporation, not because of Vince, but because of Shane. So Rock and Vince do have that history. They don't really mention it, even though it was only two years ago. That just shows how fast things move at this time. That's a really good point, actually, because um, I'd, I'd forgotten about that um, part with uh, the corporate champion, and it makes even more sense in that even back then, Vince McMahon saw The Rock as good business, and mm. in this, and he repeats about how um, the the Rock is good for business. So it makes sense that he would be backing him up. It's, it's it gives even more reasoning to everything he's doing, and it just makes so much sense in this situation. And it's it's quite let's be honest, it's a, it's quite refreshing to see all of these decisions being made and you're like, well, actually that does make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, it, there's, there's a reason behind that. There's an understanding for what brought them to this stage. Um, we'll see how the rest of the night goes in comparison, but this for, for this brief moment, they were making sense with what they were doing. And I was, I was really happy with that. That was when I was thinking, right, this could actually be a good episode of SmackDown. There's some good stuff here and I can't wait to see what happens next. Yeah, and what happened next was after weeks of getting screwed out of matches by Terry, despite also being number one contenders for the titles and not moving, making any moves towards getting their title shot, not telling us when the title shot was going to come. Was it going to be at Mania? When was it going to be? Edge and Christian get their title shot against the Dudley Boys here on SmackDown to open up the show. And the Dudleys have been uh, busy boys because on Raw, as they inform us, they put me on through a table Again, because they put they had a handicap match against Mark Kenner. They had Miller looking after May Young backstage. She's in a wheelchair with a neck brace. And then randomly during the match, Bubba Ray just fucks off. He just fucks off it, and it's just Mark Kenner v Devo, and Mark holds his own. And then May Young is there. Miller's nowhere between. I think she's behind the door, and she's maybe in the bathroom or something like that. And May cries for help as Bubba Ray just grabs the wheelchair and wheels her back out to the to the arena. And I think later on it's revealed that Miller purposely left her to get put through the table by the Dudleys. And she said in the interview, you know, she was stealing my dance battle. Like, no one ever heard of her before me. I don't care if that bitch never comes back. <laughs> and so the Dudleys wheel out me Young to the, the ramp. Probably sneaks back in. It's a quick 3D on Mark to win the handicap match. And then they put her through two tables from off of the stage. So me Young took two uh, major bumps to the tables in the last couple of weeks. So... The Dillies have got some major heat coming into this show. Absolutely. And I think um, first of all, I'm going to say fair play to Mae Young that she goes through the amount of abuse she does. I mean, there are like, there are 20 year olds who can't uh, go through tables two weeks in a row. And yet she's just like, um, you do it and do it properly and that sort of thing. And um, they do like, to some degrees, it makes me feel that that they're trying to push as much as possible that the Dudley boys have to be heels. And because there are going to be times where they're going to become slightly more interesting to crowds due to the fact that they're more interesting and unique in comparison to other teams, but they're still trying to push to make them as dastardly as possible, which Michael Cole really lays on during this match. Um, Edge and Christian, they mentioned that supposedly that Edge and Christian chose when they would get their title shot, um, which to me was stupid. It, like <laughs> You cash in a number one contendership 
on a random episode of SmackDown when you're about, what, two weeks away away from WrestleMania, two and a bit weeks, that sort of thing? I mean, the number one contendership isn't a damn coupon that runs out if you don't <laughs> use it within 30 days. It's a number one contendership. Um, depending on what type of contendership, you can keep it for 365 fucking days of the year if it's money in the bank. You know, it's just the idea of them deciding, oh, we've had bad luck recently, so let's make ourselves feel better by cashing in our number one contendership on a random episode of SmackDown because I've already had my 10% coupon off jeans run out. I don't want this one to run out as well. So they, it, it seems, it, Edge and Christian don't come across well deciding to do it on SmackDown because you think to yourself, you want it no way out. You could do it at WrestleMania, the biggest stage possible. Um, and I, I, just, oh, I just, the, I, I had the high of watching like um, a good, a relatively good segment setting things up and thinking it all makes sense. To instantly going, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> Why are you doing this? And I was just like. As soon as the match started, I was just like, I, I don't have much hope. Um, and it turns out I was right. Yeah, because like, if you get a title shot and you can choose it, either do it right away on the next Raw SmackDown or you wait till WrestleMania. You don't do this weird in the middle thing that they're doing. And, you know, I talk about the Dudley Hill momentum in terms of heat that they've got coming to this. Edging Christian's momentum is on Raw. Terry paid the acolyte to beat the shit out of them. That's what they've got coming into this. And so they say, like you said, they made themselves feel better by having this tight title shot. And I was really struggling for, to make notes for this because, well, either they jumped in and suddenly said, right, let's go immediately to the finish. Or somebody who edits this tape show accidentally deleted a big chunk in the middle by accident and they had to roll with it because like a minute, minute and a half before Terry's out and they start going to the finish sequence. It felt like what should have been like an eight, nine, ten minute match got compressed into 200 seconds. Um, the editing really doesn't help in this situation if it is that case. Or if it's the fact that they went, right, you've got three plus minutes to fit everything in and then you've got the after sequence as well to fit in. You're just like, it makes it even more pointless. You're going to you're gonna waste a number one contendership on a match that is... That, probably takes me longer to make a bowel movement you know it's ridiculous um i just like terry's involved do you know what? the only thing this accomplished was to do with terry that's the god honest truth and that is that is terrible although what they do with what they do after the match was probably the one highlight of the entire thing but I still don't like the fact that this number one contendership is wasted on a ridiculous storyline involving a valet. Yeah, because like later on in one of the other matches, they randomly in the middle of it. And oh, by the way, we just say we need no number one contender, so uh, the radicals are going to fight the Hardys uh, later on. And I think I may have figured out where our main event would have been uh, if uh, certain other matches weren't made, but I'll get to that later on. I that's my that's my that's my thing. That's my thing. You're stealing my thing. <laughs> You're stealing my thing. <laughs> I mean, you can tell us, but I think I may have worked it out. <laughs> uh, I, 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 you've, you've caused me to look at be conscious of it now because it was something that has happened, but I wasn't as aware of it until you brought it up. But the way they just announced matches so often, a whim. Clearly thinking, ah, the contendership for the WF title was a clusterfuck. Might as well do the same for the tag division because mm. yeah. 
if he won't fix it, but I'm pretty attempt because the person knocking to the referee because the thirty pass a chair and uh, the Christian avoids a shot with the chair, but they ended up again hit with a three D, which means the Dullies retain. Terry celebrates, you no know, taunts Eddie and Christian when the Hardys come out and throw Terry back in the ring. Basically, the crowd cheer the prospect of Terry getting beat up, but Eddie and Christian are like, "No, nah, we're good Canadian boys. We're not going to do it." And so they go to leave, and Ed sees in the big oval Titan Tron Terry behind him doing like mocking him, doing a wee she devil horn, and says, "Ah, fuck it!" Turns around and spears her. <laughs> and I admit, like usually, I would say, "Oh, like this is an age where all fans you no know, cheer this bit." Fuck it, I cheered because I'm done with Terry. Do, do you know, I, I, first of all, I, I love the fact that the Hardy boys got in and threw Terry into the ring because they also have been screwed over by Terry at No Way Out, as they mentioned. So it would make sense for them to want to see Terry get her commitments. Um, I thought it was brilliant the way that Edge and Christian almost forgive her, which you can sort of see would suit their character. But then as soon as Edge catches Terry on the Titan Tron. He turns around and just goes, fuck it, spears the crap out of her. And my, my actual notes just put, oh no, Terry, it's the repercussions of your own actions. Uh, yeah, it was absolutely great. I, I also love the fact Edge mocks her dance afterwards with the little Shawnee, uh, uh, horny she-devil bits. And the crowd loved it as well. They responded. And I'm really <laughs> hoping that was the moment where the writers went, hang on. These guys have some actual charisma. Let's use it. Because this was probably the first time Edge was able to show a bit of his goofiness and his character, which is actually what would make him and Christian strong, stronger later on. So this was almost like by pure accident, um, I, I can imagine, Edge sort of showed, actually, I'm kind of funny. And the, uh, hopefully the writers went, yeah, let's use that. Um, to be honest... <sighs> I almost, I almost forgot by this point that there was even an, a match because of how pointless it was. It happened. It shouldn't have happened. There was, I did like the fact that Terry got her final comeuppance and they were hopefully able to move on from it, which is about freaking time. But I also will say we are going to get a good replacement match for the tag team titles at WrestleMania. So it's hard for me to complain too much knowing where we go from here. Yeah, Edge showing that he can be funny, and like you said, I hope this is where the writers decided that because I was like, I hope this is where at the point where the plans were to not have the slab because it felt like Teddy's interference was causing tension between the two, which would have played into their uh, breakup that was planned. But uh, I'm assuming here, like they got the tide match away to then get to what we're going to get WrestleMania, and then they had the spear angle. So I thought, ah, well, let's wrap this thing up with Teddy within them, just say, ah, fucking get their their revenge on Teddy Reynolds. So we go into our uh, next match. We played Triple H out of the three. I had a similar, we had a similar incident in the lead up to the virus series where we had Triple H, Austin, and Rock all in matches, and Triple H's match randomly went first. Uh, but Triple H is out here to take on the Godfather. He's got all his holes with him, and Godfather says Stephanie can take a ride on the host train, but she, our best place would be in the caboose, and. Although there was a bit backstage where Triple H and Steph were walking to the ring and the hoes were all gathered and they all kind of had a look at Stephanie and she kind of looked at them like, yeah, no. <laughs> and, then, and also Triple H, as he would often do, no matter who he was facing, he's done it with likes of like Al Snow, even in the past, or Rikishi. But anyway, he gives a, a fair amount of offense to, to the Godfather. 
So he is, despite being one of the most hated guys on the roster, he is quite given no matter who he's in the ring with. Uh, I think that's kind of a thing that he took from Flair, because also Flair is one of his idols, and Ric Flair apparently back in the day who almost told off for how much offense he'd let his opponents get, even when he was NWA champion. And as weird, it makes you think, where the hell did this all go in late 2002, early 2003? So, it, hmm, what got me to the, what got me really popular and capable to the dance? Hmm, it was giving my opponents an opportunity to show that they could possibly beat me. Nah, let's get rid of that and now make myself as boring as possible. Uh, it's just a terrible decision. I mean, he gave the Godfather a surprising amount of offense, but I do like the fact that even despite that, there were still moments where. Triple H was mostly in control. He he had the moments where his his ring uh, his ring knowledge helps get him back into control of the match. Little things like the Godfather telegraphs have moved too soon, and Triple H takes advantage. And it's those little moments that really help build up why Triple H is the WWF champion. He really is that much better than the mid card. And it's these little examples that show why he's able to continuously keep the championship. Um, so I like that. I like that moment. I have to admit. Um, and then we found out that it turns out Earl Hebner still has hearing issues. Um, I'll let you explain <laughs> why that is. <laughs> yeah, I, I do agree. Like, I think 2003 is when about where Triple H eventually does get married to Stephanie. I'm not saying that has anything to do with the change in Triple H's booking. I'm just going to put that out there. And they, like, yeah, he does give him a fair amount of offense. But you also have to remember that Triple H is the champion. We're three weeks away from Mania, so. He does look, that looks somewhat strong because then out, he does try and hit the whole train. Uh, Shane comes out, he arguing with Stephanie, that causes the help to get distracted. So Big Show pulls Triple H out of the ring and drives him into the ring post. He rolls him back in, goes further, takes the advantage to actually beat Triple H. And I think, like I said, that you need to keep, give Triple H, like, making him look a bit strong and not give too much to go for because otherwise when they interfere later on, you're thinking, well, what would you need to interfere? He was cruelly clearly Godfather had it where he wanted, whereas if you look, make it look like Triple H is dominant and in control, then you see why, like, uh, well, he only lost because Show got involved because Show was trying to screw him after what he said earlier on. And I got excited after this because, you know, Godfather gets a win over the WWE Champion. That clearly means it's now a fatal four-way at WrestleMania. Big Show, Triple H, Rock, and the Godfather. The whole train riding all the way to WrestleMania. Yeah, and then I can. I'd really love to see Linda backing him up on the whole train, um, in his corner and that sort of thing. Um, I, I would like you to tell me whether in future the Godfather does actually get a title shot because otherwise, not only is he an underwhelming choice for the victory, but it makes even less sense in terms of what it what the Godfather does with it. It would make more sense if it was like. I mean, as soon as really we should have realized that something like this was going to happen as soon as uh, Vince McMahon had said it was a non-title match, because surely you, if, if Triple H was going to win, you could have him defend the title. But no, against the Godfather, who everyone would be like, oh, surely he's going to beat with ease. The uh, Triple H loses due to the interference. It now makes sense where it was a non-title match. What's going to happen with the Godfather? Most likely nothing. Um, it just... The booking wise, I was quite, I was questioning the choice of opponent. I understand why the finish occurred. Um, 
but I do feel to some degrees it would have made more sense with a different individual, such as like maybe, I don't know, a Chris Jericho or a Kurt Angle or, um, or even Rikishi would have made more sense in this match um, because he could actually get a title shot in the future, whereas the Godfather may not even challenge for the European title. That's, that's the issue that I had with this match. Yeah, I'll, I'll give an eye out next couple weeks of like Raw or something like that if the Godfather ever gets a, a title shot. Because, you know, it would be a real shame, you know, since watching Dan the Seed, he's become one of my boys uh, as a Godfather. Me and Carl refer to ourselves as Team Godfather and everything. So, you know, I want the Godfather, you know, like Charles Wright to get his due. But, yeah, obviously, Triple H got screwed by uh, the big show of Earl Gunnam. And like you said, like, Earl Hebner appears to be completely oblivious by the smallest things. <laughs> the smallest things like not noticing that like I know he's small but how do you miss a fucking I know, I know he's looking in a different direction but how do you miss a guy who's seven feet fucking tall pulling your champion out of the ring but you know we'll be here all day if we try to argue those things backstage your favourite tag team yes Al <laughs> Snow decides to add a sci-fi element to uh, to the team I am just a, a guy dressed as an alien it's only six years too early with ECW on sci-fi obviously it's true Al Snow could see the future and he knew what the fans wanted unfortunately people just didn't appreciate how awesome a spin-off with Steve Blackman and Al Snow in space would have been it would have been like Rick and Morty only funny you know it would have been great <laughs> I would have 100% loved it like as soon as like Steve Blackman's like yeah I love it I love it you're like what's he gonna do so Al Snow's like wait really what what runs off and then as soon as he's gone Blackman just knocks out the Martian pretty much and I'm like Steve I could watch you knock out Martians all day long <laughs> There's a sentence I don't think I was here today when I woke up. <laughs> uh, head cheese in space. Book it, <laughs> make it, sell it, make millions. Uh, well, speaking of, uh, of tag teams, uh, uh, also the tapes on the night heat are the same, uh, the same tapings they do SmackDown. And uh, what's quite interesting, the tapes the, the, for the following Sunday's episode of the night heat very interesting uh, occurred that both Albert and Tess were in separate singles matches and uh, a certain blonde Canadian came out to uh, observe these two with thoughts of, hmm, maybe these two could be an underrated tag team. See, Chris Jericho sees the future. Uh, Chris Jericho <laughs> knows what's coming. Um, I actually watched that um, episode of Heat when it first came out Um Little would I have known that 21 years later, it probably would have been my favorite diva ever. So <laughs> you, the future is about to change. We are watching history unfold. Mm. It doesn't help. But I, I like Michael Cole and I like Kevin Kelly, especially Kevin Kelly is a New Japan commentator. But them on commentary describing how attractive Chris Stratus is, just like, it comes off like they're trying too hard. Like, we're not nerds at all. We like women. We've... We've kissed a girl before. I, I've, I've even touched a boob. So, <laughs> congratulations. Your zone doesn't count. I've touched a boob. Somebody, the head said, probably Vince or Miguel Hayes. Kevin, you're a boob. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you big giant tit. Get out of here. Trish, welcome back. It's lovely to see you. <laughs> so, 
had to take on the APA with uh, Midian, who was with him on Raw. I had no idea what was happening. I'm sure this is a Sunday Night Heat storyline. But basically, Midian owes APA money, so he's basically being made to be their lackey and to work off his debt. Hitchie's uh, got a decent metal um, offense, you know, the double team for it behind the rest, but uh, there's a die on point on the Midian by Al Snow. The Midian, to get Al Snow's head, steals the head, which I often forget that he still has because it's not a big part of the game, because I'll say they're called head cheese, but it's a lot of focuses on trying to get something for Steve Black, and you forget that Al Snow still has an American head that's supposed to talk to him. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's a weird cut because at one point I saw. Uh, Midian has said and then randomly Al's gone back and he didn't even notice that and then they get, APA get the one with the coolest line from hell so technically Midian paid off in some way he's looking more competent than when he randomly got sparked out by the rock in the last episode uh, that's that's obviously um, how this unfolded. It turns out that it's not that Midian owes um, the Acolytes money or anything like that. He's decided to work with the Acolytes because they can protect him from the rock, uh, it, which is actually quite clever. Um, it, it seems weird. You mentioned earlier on that the Acolytes were beating up Edge and Christian on Monday Night War because you were talking about the momentum Edge and Christian had before their title match. And then this this match, the Acolytes win again. But it's almost like in both situations, they feel like a complete and utter afterthought. Like, it just so happens to be the Acolytes. Um, it just all happens to be them who are winning these matches. Like, it's, it's very much almost forgettable. So, this just ends up being a match that happened. It doesn't really generate anything worthwhile. And that, is, that isn't great because so far... It means that we've had three matches, one of which was announced on the night, and all three of them so far really have been more concerned with storylines than actual match quality. And this was getting to a point that it felt like it was going to be quite indicative of the rest of the show. And this is where my hope from the first segment was gradually starting to dwindle. <laughs> it's weird because, like, actually, we'll start develop this whole actually protecting and think it can be one of the most like, entertaining parts of the show. But it's still in the early stages, and it feels like they can just come in and out of any situation and not really be heels or faces. They're just doing what they need to do if they're being paid. So, like, yeah, Terry's a heel, but they're not heels because she paid them the money to, to beat up Edging Christian. But weirdly, they've won two. They beat up Edging, beat Edging Christian on Raw. They beat Head Cheese here. They technically have more momentum now than any other tag team. So, what do you think, really? Like, real if there's like AEW in their rankings. Acolytes would be at the top of the rankings, and they should be the ones challenging the Dudleys, because for a little while, in 2000 especially, there's a point where they become so entertaining, they do get tied title shots, it seems like they become the team that seemingly doesn't need the belt in WWE's eyes, because they're already two-time champs, they had two short reigns in 99, or one more reign in 2001, but it's not as long as you might think it was. So it seems like they're all the three-time tag champs, but they never were actually treated as tag contenders as much as WWE used to believe they were. They just end up becoming the new John Cena where they return from a hiatus and go, I want a title shot because I'm Bradshaw and he's Farouk and we are the Acolytes and that sort of thing. It just very much, they just get seamlessly fitted into whatever requirement there is for them. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't know if you saw JPL's recent a Hall of Fame speech. The video package does mainly portray them as fun-loving, ass-kicking beer drinkers, and does talk about the three-time tag train 
shows him very that very briefly, but focuses more on the beer drinking. And at the end of his Hall of Fame speech, it looks like JBL's going to apologise for the billing that he's reportedly done over the years, and then just went, cry me a river snowflake, I'm JBL, I don't apologise to anyone. And then does his whole wrestling dodge It's 100% true, I can see it, um, and doesn't surprise me at all. It's a big show versus Rikishi. Now, these two have been kind of odd because of, like, by proxy of Rikishi being associated with The Rock. And so they don't face off in singles matches that much, but it feels like I already, like, felt like, oh, I've seen this too many times when this was announced. And then, given the fact that Big Show interfered with Triple H's match earlier, I wasn't necessarily looking forward to much from an ring standpoint because I thought, somebody's going to come in, it's going to be Triple H or The Rock or somebody like that. So I was just inevitably waiting for the shenanigans to begin. Mm. Uh, it, it's very much one of those where the first match that occurs gives you an indication of how the rest of the matches are going to go so it, it's pretty much you might as well put a time on not for how long the match is going to um, go but how soon Triple H is actually going to come out and that sort of thing um, I like the fact that Rikishi is still getting a bit of a good push continued on after everything that he's done so far that he's been included um, in big matches such as this um, I think it's it's a really good sign for him, actually. Yeah, very good, um, and uh, that does hopefully continue and does continue throughout it is because, like, I do as there are a stream of pay per views in two thousand where Rikishi and Tuchel are like in the opener or in one of the first matches on the card, and that's because of how popular they are. So, like, some people think, oh, there's also the joke of curtain jerking, like being the opening match, but like Rikishi and Tuchel ain't proved for a while that being the opening. Like match is important because you know if you're over especially you can help get the crowd off to a hot start even if whether or not they're a good crowd or not but show does a super kick and by that means he lifts his legs slightly higher than he'd expect someone as agile as him at this stage of his career uh, Rikishi goes for a sink face but Big Show avoids it that's really becoming a thing now for Rikishi I don't think they've called it a sink face it's just saying oh he's going to put his butt in his face <laughs> Belly to belly by uh, Rikishi and Triple H to match the hell blow in a pair of year again. Referees always meaning with their head in a swivel as per usual. Rikishi gets the bonsai drop and gets the win. Um, I like the fact that Rikishi still has his injured ankle. I have to admit, I think that that really helps weaken, weaken him enough to make him less of an overpowered babyface because as, as a heel, his size would be a major part of what he was doing. But as a babyface, it's a lot harder normally to make it easy for the crowd to feel sorry for him. Whereas the inclusion of using that injured ankle really does help, especially against someone like Big Show. Uh, which was, So that's a really good touch as well. I did find it strange that Big Show comes out in the leather trousers he's been wearing, only as Rikishi is entering, he seems to remove them and then does a super ninja attack out of nowhere to wipe Rikishi out. Um, because it turns out a seven foot two, uh, 500 pound man can turn into a damn ninja and not get noticed. So I'll have no, I do apologize for your deafness value one, but <laughs> I'm just a little bit confused as to why he would wear the leather trousers coming out and take them off when he's actually in the match. I thought at this rate, he's, he, it's almost like a sign where you'd be like, yeah, I wasn't expecting to wrestle tonight, so I didn't even bring my wrestling outfit with me. So I'm going to leather trousers up this bitch, and I'm going to look fantastic doing it. Um, nope, he just was really, 
lackadaisical and forgot that he was wearing them. Um, the Samoan drop by Rikishi is always a very impressive move when he does it on the big show. I, I like the fact he always looks like he struggles a little bit to do it. And then the big show just bounces back with ease, with a massive close on it. It's a really subtle inclusion of the size and strength difference between them. Um, it's an interesting difference, though, in that Rikishi, Rikishi has it that Big Show gets knocked down by Triple H, and Rikishi still hits the Banzai drop, getting um, a cleaner victory, so to say, than the Godfather, who has it as soon as Triple H gets thrown in, he just jumps on him and takes the pin. It's, a, it's an interesting um, difference between the two that shows the more heelish antics to some degrees of Charles Wright um, in comparison or the bigger desperation that uh, the Godfather has to just take the victory because he's unlikely to get another chance. Whereas Rikishi is like, no, I'm going to win it the right way. It, it was just an, an interesting little inclusion that I was curious about and liked to see. But apart from that, it was, um, it was another, it was another story storyline uh, match. It was a match that, wasn't really about quality. It was about how do we continue the story we're already doing. Um, so just continues on like that. I imagine Big Show probably looks as good in leather trousers as Ross from Friends thought he looked good in leather trousers in that one episode of Friends. But yeah, I agree with your points about Rikishi. I think uh, when we talk about a bit of color potential again, I take the show. I do think that is uh, unlikely. Even more so now looking at this because you know he had to then immediately take the pin, get the pin after uh, Big Show had already taken it at Triple H. Whereas uh, they make sure Rikishi hit the bonsai because well he is meant to be a face, and also probably the fact that they have more plans for him than they do for Godfather. I think they could, by this point two thousand, they're thinking we've got all we can probably at the Godfather. Well, you think that until a certain faction comes along later this year. Yes, I. I'm honestly excited to see that faction just because I think they're one of those that could have been, could have had more done with them because of how different they are. But we'll go into that when we get closer to their unveil. Yeah. They're, uh, they're currently NBC Peacock's favorite faction at the moment, but moving on, <laughs> we have Bob Backlund locking up a poor, Arena employee in the cross face chicken wing to show its uh, effectiveness as uh, Angle is getting ready to team with Bob Backlund. And what's weird is this continues on from uh, a match between, there's a triple threat between Angle, Jericho, and Taz. But weirdly, we talk about it again of uh, Angle only defending one title at a time. This triple threat was for the European title, which is where I would have thought it would have been for the IC title. Mm. Uh, and uh, Jack, and uh, Kurt Angle comes out and saying that he would have still beaten Taz or Jericho last week without the help of Bob Backlund. And Jericho then comes out and makes gay jokes about Angle and uh, Backlund said, you guys have a special relationship or whatever. And then I put in all caps, stop giving Taz a microphone. <laughs> like, I can't even remember what he said, but God, it was awful. It's really written for him. Backlund oh. gets I, I have to admit, I kind of like his line about nothing and like it. I feel like that's a really cool mantra in life. And that was one of those moments where I was like, ooh, Taz can actually speak on the microphone. I like that. 
uh, Backlund does get involved in the match. China comes out as a whole blow. Uh, Angle hits Jericho with the European title to retain, kind of similar to how he used the IT title to take it off of Jericho initially. And now we've got Angle team with Backlund against Jericho and Taz. Angle comes out and says that now the crowd have two American heroes that they can be proud of. And Backlund just starts rambling on about morality and the lack of it in the country today. And I think he is still running for office at this time. And Summer and Gorilla WWF are glad that this is a tape show that they give him back when the microphone on. And out comes Jericho. He calls them both uh, nerds and compares uh, compares Backlund to Howdy Doody, the puppet. Uh, and then Taz comes out. And I heard Taz and he's like, everybody's so fucking with a mic. Please tell me Taz didn't come out with a mic. Please tell me. Oh, he's got a fucking mic. And then he says, like, all you can do is nothing like it because he says someone's going to get choked out. But somehow in my notes, it's auto-corrected to uh, checked out. And I think it's just a uh, description of how I felt whenever Taz gets the mix, but I just check out. <laughs> uh, that, was a, that was a hell of a Freudian slip in your, um, in your notes there, wasn't it? Going like... Um, Oh, he's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna check out of this, and he's gonna like it. Oh, wait, that's me. Um, the Bob Backlund on the microphone is pure insanity, and I don't know whether you noticed, but Kurt Angle, when he's listening to him, looks like he's just listening to his crazy old grandpa ranting at the Thanksgiving dinner, thinking, "Oh God, what are we gonna do next?" Um, it's almost no surprise that the music interrupted Backlund because it was the only way they were going to have to freaking stop him. Mm-hmm. You know, I could honestly, if they tried to tell us that storyline, these two were related, I'd believe them. Because I can imagine Angle, you know, even being a big old male going around for Thanksgiving dinner around to his grandparents' house and his old crazy grandpa Backlund, who used to also be an amateur wrestling champion these day, still trying to wrestle the young, the youth of today and probably still got it. but. Uh, Angle at the Belly to Belly on Taz manages to avoid the chicken wing. There's a bit of a bronze that crew temporarily, but then Backlund does get caught in the Taz mission, and Jericho gets the walls on Angle. It looks like the faces have got it. But then out comes uh, Benoit to attack Jericho, which I thought, oh, this is how it starts, because uh, these, these two will be involved at WrestleMania. Jericho and Benoit will be involved a lot throughout uh, 2000, 2001. And uh, China comes out to help Jericho, but then Eddie Guerrero uh, gets involved also to help Benoit, his, his radical teammate. He's a on Raw, but his arm keeps coming in and out of the the sling. Uh, even though he's fully recovered, he still has this cast when he, he needs it. And he, the radicals will be a few times after this, so you'll see that reoccurring. And uh, like he's not hurt, and but you're like, no, it's one of those it's one of those reoccurring injuries. Yeah, it's one of those injuries that uh, comes in and out, uh, a bit like when The Rock comes back again from Hollywood, etc. Um, it happens uh, always round about WrestleMania season. Uh, I I like the fact that this seemed to have built up on the previous episodes we watched, where Jericho and Taz are now teaming up for revenge against Macklund and Angle. There's a continuous through line going, which I like, where it's showing it's building upon each other. And this is where you start start to think to yourself, surely it's going to be Jericho and Taz battling Kurt Angle at some point. It this, But then seeing Chris Benoit come out, I'm like, this. it seems very random for him to just come out for no reason and just attack. And that ends up being what creates the triple threat match. It is, it's just... 
these little elements that they saw, it's almost like the way it's went, you know, maybe we should replace Taz with Chris Benoit. Why? Because, and that's it. Just because, like, why not? Um, I like the fact that this is probably the first match tonight to feature regular wrestling moves, like suplexes and roll-ups and that sort of thing. And it feels like there's a, this is where you feel like a little difference in comparison to some, some of the matches we've already seen. But this match basically was more or less a throw-out um, and was all storyline more than anything. So, again, continuing the habit of the evening so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do, like, part of me does think that what happened at WrestleMania for the year continental title was not involved Taz in some way, but listening to the way he talks and the microphone, I think, you know, Ben was not that much more charismatic, but, you know, fuck it, we'll put him in. Taz, way back to the hardcore division, fuck with you. <laughs> Go back to where you belong. <laughs> Uh, Jonathan Coachman is there uh, like giving an update I think he's talking about me Young oh no shit where have I put it here oh yeah he's talking about Crash Hall I forgot about this I think I put it in the wrong segment because oh I want to talk about a hardcore segment Crash, or, uh, I'm so excited I can't speak there's a hardcore tale thing on Raw where uh, the Mean Street Posse and Prince Albert were attacking uh, Crash Holly at the the baggage claim at the airport and uh, Coach is trying to talk about uh, I think with Crash it's going to come up later on that they're going to show footage of and Kane grabs Coachman looking for the Xbox and then he tells him where he is and Kane buggers off and he's cut back to the arena but on uh, Raw Pete Gass did briefly win the, uh, the hardcore tail Crash immediately got back up grabbed his heels hit Gass with him and pinned him grabbed his bag and ran along the baggage carousel with him I like the little waddle that Crash does when he's like running down the carousel as well. Um, when I hear the hardcore division, this is one of the images that comes up straight away. I have to admit, um, it's it, it to me it is the twenty four seven championship perfectly, but not as perfect as the next segment. Oh yeah, oh I I think I met Heath at the end of our last one because I just kind of looked ahead. When I when we got to this this portion of the the hardcore title, this was the segment I was most looking forward to. And they say that Crash was at Fun Time USA, and the headbangers have taken poor El Hebner with them, looking for Crash Holly. And the guy says, "Oh yeah, he's upstairs in the the arcade area." And so I think it's Mosh. I can never tell the difference. Mosh then goes up to the up to the stairs to the arcade and leaves Hebner and Hebner and Thrasher downstairs. They'll say Crash there's some cool thing downstairs and Crash is there and he's every normal day goes playing the arcade with the hardcore title still over in his waist. So I will everyone ever tell that you're the hardcore champion. <laughs> he uh, he and so then he starts attacking him, but Crash manages to to get away and then he goes down the slide this massive slide in the middle of Fontaine's day to get away. So Mosh chases after him. And then the cameraman, and you can just see about the cameraman's legs as the cameraman is sliding down this massive slide in Fontaine's USA. And oh, I remember there was talking about, uh, I think he was one of the people producing this segment. 
I can't remember who he said. I think it may have been him or somebody else who just randomly threw, hey, what if uh, the cameraman went down? So, yeah, I think he might have said Earl Hebner was one of the people that came up with it, but, like, I can't remember who it was, but, like, it was just one of the things he just randomly came up with, like, throwing out ideas, saying this as funny as possible. It just The fact that you can see the cameraman's legs and everything as he's just falling down the slide. They didn't bring more than one cameraman to the cup between that. It's one cameraman continuously following them. I love the idea of um, the cameraman actually following Dan because obviously you've got it that one of the headbangers has gone up and is uh, instantly saying, referee, you stay down here, which means that when he tries pinning Crash Holly upstairs, it accomplishes nothing because there's nobody there to actually count it. But I, I, I always remember Crash Holly sliding down the slide. I'd forgotten that the cameraman slides down with him, which is obviously how he got the shot. But I love the fact that he follows him and then pretty much as he lands at the bottom, crashes walked right into a trash can shot. And it's just, it's almost like so perfectly timed getting that. And I was just like, this is the madness of the hardcore division. This is why I've been so excited to rewatch these episodes because I get to see the randomness of it all. And it's that random throw something at the wall and see what happens that comes up with such great originality in this moment. Yeah, and then like the bed bangers fall into that same trap that they've been repulsive fell into, where they're arguing over who's going to get the pin. They try to hit Crash with the hammer of like one of those like uh, tester strength machines that Crash finds avoid, and then he goes into this like kids play area, and so the head bangers. Uh, it's funny how small Crash is; they perfectly fits into a lot of the areas as well, and I'm sure that's what that was the intention going into. It's like Crash, you're short; you're basically a child, and then. They have they go like I'll go this way, you go this way, we'll cut them off. And Errol Herder's outside it, so again, it's gonna be very difficult to try and pin them. So then Crash like does a dive into the ball pit, and then he swings on these wee like hooks and hits a hurricane run inside this play area. And then makes his escape out the door. The headbangers come out of the play area and then look at Earl Hebner as if he fucked they're like, Earl, what do you do? Like, why didn't you stop him? <laughs> Especially like considering at the very beginning they said specifically to Earl Hebner the only thing you are to do is to count the pinfall. So Al has actually followed their instructions and this has backfired completely on them. And you saw that like two or three times where every time they made the decision, um, it would end up backfiring on them. I love the moment where Crash is in the ball pit and he, he does a flying clothesline. I love the fact that he uses the rope to swing across and do a hoa karana. It's the sort of thing that at the age of 10, when I went to these sort of play pits, I was imagining that I was defending the hardcore championship <laughs> in a 24-7 match. It was so freaking brilliant. I I loved this whole segment. It is one of the segments I've remembered most in the last 20 years. It's one of those that whenever I think of the hardcore championship and the 24-7 rule, I think of this match. And I would go so far as to say, with Crash Holly as champion, I don't know if the hardcore championship ever reach this peak again because this was perfect television for me mm-hmm. same it's like this was just peak uh, hardcore championship like, especially with the 24 7 rule and yeah I, I remember there being there being like massive soft play areas uh, you or I lived and wherever we went there as kids for me my brother and my cousins this was just one massive like area for us to do it's the massive wrestling brawl and, and so many different things we could do we, never always, we didn't always use like the, the hardcore title. It's an hour we just like we're just really into wrestling. Any excuse to just hit moves on the soft 
did match and then we could say, oh no, it's soft, man, we're not getting hurt. Because if, if they saw for one minute we were getting hurt, it's like, right, none of that, none of that wrestling. And you think it can't get any weirder on SmackDown than having a bunch of guys fighting in, a, in Fun Team USA. What about Kane getting locked in the back of a truck? Because Kane just attacked Xbox and Triple H. And then they, they throw him in, they throw him in the back of this truck and then just slam the door uh, shutter behind him, lock it, and you just hear Kane on the other end banging on the on the truck. I was so I was wondering if they were just going to try and hire somebody to just drive the truck away. Because you know how DX love their kidnapping. And we go to commercial, come back, and Vince says, well, if, Kane, if they can get Kane out of that truck by the time the main event starts, the next spot's taking his place against The Rock. I actually feel this obviously shows tremendous growth on behalf of D-Generation X in that the recent kidnapping charges have suggested to them they can lock people away, but don't drive off with them. So therefore, they like locked Kane away, and and I can imagine what the sh- what the clips didn't show was them going, "Oh, should we drive away with him, mate?" You realise what our lawyer said last time we did that? We almost got threatened with having to pay two fines. At least this way, we only have to pay a fine for locking someone up. <laughs> Think about it. So they go, "Now nah, it's absolutely fine." And of course, Finn's man is instantly going to see this and go, "Well, let's punish Triple H and next pack for it." Um, so X-Pac ends up getting thrown into a match with The Rock. Um, I mean, obviously it's, it's perfectly appropriate because Tori was already dressed for later on to go out to the ring. They just didn't know they had a match yet. So, uh, it, it's this, it's this clever thinking of not removing your leather trousers and having your outfit on at all times that make the big show in Tori so impressionable as a uh, preparation for matches. I absolutely <laughs> love it. Thinking you know. And, we have, and we go from that to like it being a non-existent thing on SmackDown to now. I think this is the third week in a row. The light heavyweight title is on the line, but noteworthy is that it's not SA Rios defending it. He lost that the title on Raw to Dean Malenko, the Radicals. We had it was a much slower match. A lot of the crowd were very not really quiet during it on Raw, but it was because it was because obviously Malenko was playing it more the heel with SA Rios to face and. Uh, uh, Malenko was trying to like wear him down and like you know showcase that like, he was the man of a thousand holes, but they didn't get to do a lot of that because like it was more based on shenanigans with Eddie being on the outside and Lita being there. Eddie had girl power bombs Lita on the outside of the ring, which is a noteworthy thing here. And then uh, Malenko does like a like the uh, Owen Hart Brett spot, where, like it uses his only shoulders, tries a victory roll, but he sits down on it, gets the pin, and see Malenko is the first radical to win gold in the WWF. And it's interesting now because later on we'll have that uh, two members of the Radicals being involved in number contendership for the tag titles. You had Benoit getting involved in the uh, uh, match that involved people fighting for the hard, for the IC and European titles. So, you know, something they do, although the Radicals did not uh, enough for my liking, that this idea of this new faction finally all starting to try and get gold of their own, you know, will be in the first to, to get a title. I think uh, having Dean Malenko be the first one to gain a title was probably a really good move because he is such a solid, reliable in-ring competitor. Um, you can like the fact that um, he can give such a good rub to like heavyweight championship, which has obviously gained prominence over the last month from what we've seen. Because Sa Rios was fun, but he wasn't really a noteworthy enough name 
And because of the fact that he couldn't speak in English, um, which for me, I, I don't really care about, but I know that's something that WWE would care about. It makes sense that they decide to transfer it over to a different wrestler in Dean Malenko. And it makes us see, we all see like a more or less a transitional champion to some degrees in that the main aim and uh, was to eventually have it with Dean Malenko. And Malenko is one of those that he goes in and is so reliable. It doesn't matter who he's put against. And I, I did think that Grandmaster Saxey was a very interesting choice for Malenko's first title defense. Because if I remember correctly, I believe that Brian Lawler was actually the final of the tournament that crowned mm-hmm. the first champion. Yeah, it was him versus Takamichi uh, Noku. And weirdly, I, I believe that uh, uh, I do believe that uh, Scott Taylor, well, it be Scott Taylor, was who Grandmaster Saxey beat in the semi finals to get to the final. And then Esterios would be a masked wrestler Aguila. And he would go on to fight Takamichi Noku at Mania 14, which would be the only time the uh, the light of retail was defending at WrestleMania. And it's that fact which makes me un- irresistible to all females. <laughs> that kind of knowledge, you know? Women can't keep their hands off me. No, it's understandable. Um, th- this is definitely not a Kevin Kelly moment on Sunday Night Heat. <laughs> all right, I wouldn't go that far. But yeah, it does make sense that the... They put it on Dean Malenko, you know, in the early days of the cruiserweight division, he was a figurehead of that uh, division. So, and the whole thing about it was to try and counteract the the cruiserweight division. WCW it's just that I don't think the WF really understood what really made the cruiserweight division special, and they don't really that they gave it the time. So, I don't think the results were the same when they put the belt on Malenko. But the okay, the magic continues. This whole thing with too cool and the radicals has been going on. Uh, Lanko attacks Gamma before he can even get his jacket off. But he smashes the face in a baseball slide drop kick on Lanko and Guerrero, who's accompanying him. And at one point, Lanko tries to mock Scott Hoy by doing the worm and Scott retaliates by grabbing his leg. Like, that's my move. You don't ever steal my thing. <laughs> and Eddie gets ended up getting shoved into the post. And, and uh, but then Lanko. Referee is so distracted that even Eddie getting taken out, he still managed to recover in time to not grab a sexy off the top rope, and that helps set up Malenko uh, getting the one and retaining. So, not as exciting as previously, a way title match, but Malenko will have better uh, against the other half of, of Two Cool to come. But uh, noteworthy also is that Jaina comes out to get revenge on Eddie Guerrero. Imagine, imagine those two being a prolonged program together, that would never work. No, I could not see it. I think uh, they just uh, they just don't have the chemistry that's required to make magic on television. Um, so I have to admit, um, it's it's interesting that Grandmaster Sexy, who I I do feel is the weaker part of Too Cool, um, was the end up having the title shot when we know in future there's going to be much better matches down the line with. Scotty too hot. I found the finish a little underwhelming. It was like mm-hmm. pretty much just oh, I fell off the top rope, and you get the free count, and it feels like very, um, oh, that would do. The difference you can see in WWE and WCW is that WWE are focused purely on the size and the weight of the competitors, whereas WCW was focused on the ability of the wrestlers. So Mm. the matches that should be quite high-flying and exciting and that sort of thing sometimes feels too reminiscent of the main event scenes. They have to be too, they have to be in that style instead of pushing what could be 
unique and different about it and make it exciting. Ironically, they do what they do with the hardcore championship to make it stand out. They don't do with the light heavyweight championship. Um, still a solid match though. Um, I can't complain too much about it. It is unfortunate that the biggest reactions seem to be for Grandmaster Sexay's annoying dances. <laughs> I, the Malenko pretending to, the, to do the worm did make me smile. And it is one of those moments where I'm like, everyone says that Malenko has no charisma. And yet that is actually really fucking funny. I actually did laugh along with that. Although the best moment was probably when Scotty's bouncing up and down on the bottom, on the bottom rope and he ends up bouncing too hard and landing on the floor. And afterwards he's just like, <laughs> I didn't do that. You didn't see it. And I'd like to imagine he thought that was going to be cut out of the match. And mm-hmm. the and Facebook was just like, no, you are keeping that on there. That is the best part of the match. Um, it's, you get the, the of them coming to the gorilla and like, you're going to cut that, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Man, that was such good shit. We're keeping that in. <laughs> it's good shit, bro. It's good shit. We'll make Scotty be clumsy unless he's doing the worm. And that's when he suddenly has the best balance in the world. Um the most fascinating thing, unfortunately, is, is just the case that, as we, as you probably realised, this was the original main event of the entire show um, before the new matches were announced. Which, without the new matches that were announced at the beginning of the night and halfway through, not only would this have been the original main event, which would have actually been quite impressive for the late heavyweight championship that's put in that um, in that prominent role, it would have been one of only four matches the entire night. Uh, I'd like to see in terms of keeping what the hell the structure of the show and the run times look like going into the show because it must look like a very like at least half a piece of paper if even that because I expect it to believe that most of the show is even bit till somebody goes out there to cut a promo or just something thrown together because it's unbelievable I mean would have been hell of a sight to see the light of it they'll suddenly be in the main event but this wasn't the match to do it with because you know like it was just taking these really cheap Victories. I think it's the difference between how he's been portrayed here in the WWF as just a member of a seal, seal faction, excuse me, and not the man of a thousand holds that he is known as. You know, if he was been like they portrayed him as that in his first match when the radicals were faced, but as soon as he turned heel, like he still seems to have changed as part of the WWF, and it makes the he's dancing more funny. That like Linko's hairline started going very early, so he always looks older than he probably is. But when he tried to do the dance, he's like. He's like a dad at a family party trying to do the dance with the younger kids. <laughs> His face was the equivalent of like, do you remember when Peter Kay would do the clip about weddings and how mm-hmm. the dad would be like, no, nah, I'm not dancing, I'm not dancing. And then YMCA comes on and he turns his face around. He's got a huge big grin on his face and he's just like, young man. You can just imagine Dean being the one at the wedding reception, just be like, no, nah, I don't dance. I don't dance. I don't dance. And then suddenly YMCA comes on. He's like, no, nah, that's my fucking jam. And he gets out there and he throws a thousand dance moves that you never expected to see. And it's absolutely amazing. I I, I could probably watch Dean Malenko's face doing that so many times. I just want a gif of that going on again and again and again. Um, it would be perfectly suited for his future James Bond role. Um, oh, but unfortunately, we're months away from that. Yeah, I mean... The Man of a Thousand Dance Moves was a gimmick that could have worked, that could have really shot him to the top of the company until Jericho came on to declare himself the Man of a Thousand and Four Dance Moves. And, like, I've mentioned before, I'm not a fan of the Radical Steam Socks. It was weird to have this great commercial and then immediately hear their theme song again starting and then walk them out. 
and also looking at Benoit and Eddie were involved in the the tag match with Jericho and Taz earlier on, get like getting involved. So we get a lot of radicals very in such a like short space of time. Mm. I think that's um, quite a good sign that they've shown that they're reliable already, and because of the way their characters are displayed, uh, uh, portrayed. Sorry, um, it, you it sort of makes sense. They're very much one of those that back each other up, that they attack um, people as a group, as um, as a team, etc. And they are so good in the ring that they help keep up the quality of the entire show. They become the reliable ones that you go, oh, we'll bring, we'll get them in that match. Because up to now, they've really not had much of a purpose apart from attack and hurt. So this is the first time they've had a proper mentality of keeping a championship and wanting to be champions. And the the only confusing part is the fact that of the ones chosen to be the tag team representatives, Saturn and Benoit seem a little bit surprising, but with Eddie's injury and the fact that Dean Malenko is better suited to the light heavyweight championship, overall it does make more sense. Um, and I love seeing the Radicals featured so predominantly because of how good they are. Yeah, I don't even think, like, I think they're, they're going to throw in that Eddie wants us all to believe he's still injured when he totally isn't. But if he, they weren't going that, it would have clearly been as Eddie and Saturn in this position would have been like better suited for this, or even Saturn and Malenko. Mm. But on this position, considering he just also tried to go after the Intercontinental European title earlier on. So it was weird. I wasn't actually looking forward to this as much as I probably should know. He's in the Hardy V, Saturn and Benoit. But, you know, I think maybe because it was so rushed together. Uh, Jeff Hardy gets a uh, slingshot uh, to the outside. Matt gets worked over uh, by the, the heels. Uh, so uh, it was better than when you actually look at it like belly bell. Uh, Jeff does get the hot tag as it was known to do in the Hardy because he's already the more popular one. Leaps over. He has been one in the corner but Saturn's bent over. So he leaps over Saturn to poetry and motion on Benoit. But then uh, the, uh, Saturn gets a really good looking uh, tiger suplex. And Jeff uh, he goes for a swanton, but uh, Benoit pulls Jeff off, off the cover, otherwise he would have won as a bunch of dice outside. And as they're showing the replays, all the fast paced stuff in the moves to the outside, it's only when we come back from the replays we see, oh, during the replays, the match got thrown out. So you don't even show us again, or you don't do like split screen. No, you show us, they take out the whole screen by showing replays. And then when we come back, the match is over, just as it's actually getting good and people are starting to invest in it. Absolutely. Um, I agree pretty much with everything you've just said. I thought um, the it's a very fast-paced match, very quickly. And um, having Matt do the majority of the uh, heavy lifting in the early goings, because he's always been the better in-ring competitor, and it allows them to utilize Jeff as the hot tag option, which, uh, which makes more sense due to the way his sequence of moves are very much for big moments. So it, it works very well, getting the crowd reaction, and it shows that they've created a really good system on how to best portray their team. I love the I love the very start of the match when they do, when Saturn and Benoit do that amazing double slingshot and Jeff basically goes flying over the top rope to the floor. And that really built into late one when he gets the hot tag because it makes more sense 
why he's hitting all of these big moves. It's like, right, I've all, they've already thrown me out of the way. Now I'm going to prove what I can do. Um, the fact that Matt works very well with Benoit, I also think is very um, underrated and how important it is because that actually shows you how capable he is actually in the ring. Because the Radicals were tremendous workers. The quality of their matches had increased the overall shows since their de- debut. And the fact that Matt was able to work well with them and there was good chemistry between all four of them were, could almost be a, rem- a reminder to audiences Actually, the Hardy Boys are really capable wrestlers. They could uh, really get um, good opportunities from this. There was some good near falls. It never, it never um, slowed down at any point. It was, uh, as I said, it was quite fast paced with lots of action. Benoit pulling Jeff out of the ring by his hair was the sort of like, um, like viciousness that you expect from the Radicals. So even that really ties into their character as well. The finish with the double count out is disappointing it does put a slight damper on the match but i would be lying if i didn't say up till then the match had been very enjoyable yeah it had to be which makes it so disappointing that it got thrown out of the way you know it's like they had michael and eddie come back out to get involved as it gets thrown out or if like the dudley's got involved then i understood it but now the situation with the titles is like no clearer than it was before because now we have zero number contenders. I just pushed and wasted their opportunity earlier on. I mean, I thought of it, this would be set up for the Hardys to take a spot and maybe get Gotha, which sets up for what we get at WrestleMania. But clearly not. It was weirdly thrown together. And then we got back to Xbox complaining about having to face The Rock and saying about why he always gets like, dragged into Triple H's messes. Like, the amount of times he had to face Kane and people like that. And like, we had to face Test for him. But like, you're facing The Rock in the main event of the show and like the main reason you're doing it is because you locked Kane away so either and they keep going back to the, the truck to see them try and get Kane out so if you didn't lock Kane in there he, you wouldn't have to wrestle also if you get him out now so he can take your place he's not going to care about the match he's going to be more angry at you anything. so take the win take this as a win where you're going to face the Rock Kane's still locked up and Triple H is probably going to have your back to help you try and cheat to beat the Rock Again, it's a situation where it's the repercussion of their own actions. They thought that they were clever by locking Kane away, and all they've ended up doing is putting themselves in a position where X-Pac has to, has to actually do the work. And it, I like the fact that he actually called Triple H out on it, the fact that he seems to keep on getting involved in Triple H's crap. And Triple H only gets involved, really, when it's beneficial to him, um, which is... is, um, is <sighs> It's really indicative of uh, Triple H's character, really, that he's only happy about this because it means that X-Pac can deal with The Rock, which helps Triple H. So it always gives this cerebral, ulterior motives to everything Triple H does. Um, It is strange still to see that they're still continuing this view between X-Pac and Kane. I mean, we we were discussing it last week. Surely they should have finished it by now, and they just seem to continue keeping them in a placeholder where this will do for the moment it's just i feel it feels like it's never gonna end and that's not what you want to see from this match and the fact it's one of only three moments where kane actually features in the show was probably quite disappointing for you i imagine Mm -hmm. yeah i have no idea what the hell's happened with kane anymore he's just they made it to be he was out easily. He was just tricked in the back of that truck and then locked up. And how 
really the house, much they struggle to get him out. Like, how the world did they put the lock that truck? I mean, this is a guy who ripped a cell hair on the cell door off its hinges, and then he can't get out of the back of a fucking truck. Just so stupid. And so the the Rock and Xbox, as most of the Rock's matches go, they start brawling through the crowd and around ringside, and then I realised the bill hadn't actually rung yet. Uh, and I think it's obviously when they get back in the ring for uh, the bill to actually ring. Xbox gets driven balls first into the ring post, which I'm sure made Tori very unhappy. Uh, Big Show and Triple H come out to ringside, uh, so you'll see you're waiting for shenanigans. Uh, they do like interfere to help give Xbox the advantage because you know they don't really. They just want to see the Rock lose and get humiliated. He's like, "Fuck it, we lost tonight, so the Rock has to as well." Uh, uh, rock counters the uh, the Bronco Buster leaping up and into a Rock bomb, which I thought was a really cool counter. Triple uh, H uses the title belt to help Rock in the face, but the Rock is immune to such things. He parts the moan. You can't hit him in the head with anything. He'll never give up. And then Kane comes out, gets full power on everything for it. Uh, he chases Xbox away as this Triple H, Xbox, and Big Show are just showing fighting as we see Kane chasing Xbox through the crowd. Everybody's fighting. And I think this has helped to give that extra boost a few weeks uh, hit away from me. Like, everything's chaotic. Everybody's fighting each other. What's it going to be like at WrestleMania? It, it's a good ending in terms of selling what could happen. I like the fact that it ends with the preview of the triple threat match and the fact that both Triple H and Big Show have been talking about how um, they're going to win and uh, that it's likely that The Rock will take the four or Triple H said The Rock will beat Big Show but has no chance against him. And in the end, it's The Rock who is leaving the other two battling one another Um with Vince cackling uh, backstage, pretty much, and it's it shows that it's not it's not as obvious as what they've been saying now. Whereas before, the Rock was battling both sides against him. Now all three of them are battling one another. So suddenly, the opportunities that the Rock has has increased. Like he has more possibility of actually winning. Um, Expat getting involved in this match probably was a better match than the Rock versus Kane would have been. Expat. Despite the hate he gets, you have to admit is a solid worker. He is he is very good at what he does. There's a reason why Vince McMahon trusted him, used him a lot, etc. Um, the X Pac is really good at putting the rock over, especially because even thinking back to the Royal Rumble where X Pac took that hellacious bump from the rock, throwing throwing himself over the top rope and land on the floor. X-Pac makes the rock look even better than he already is. I mean, just look at that rock bottom that he got where he almost got the victory on X-Pac. It was a massive rock bottom. X-Pac really puts over the strength and ability of the rock, considering that he's mostly been battling people the same size or bigger than him lately. And it's a really subtle reminder of what the rock is capable of. Um, as an ending, solid. It was. Um, it leaves you wanting to watch the next episode, which is what the main aim of it is. Um, not too many complaints regarding the match. Um, just a li- little bit disappointing that it was, again, another match that we didn't really get a finish for. But it, it, it's, it sort of made sense at the time. Yeah. Uh, it was similar to Ron that starts kind of near the opener perfectly sets up for what's coming later and does finish hot and leave you wanting more. And actually jumps up excitement for what is, what is when we talk about it, uh, fairly like not, not so well-remembered WrestleMania other than a few matches. 
but still, like, knowing what we're going to get, you're still excited for it because of how well they've sold you on it on the weekly TV. I agree. I agree. I think um, in retrospect, we obviously, um, our expectations are a little bit tempered, but I'm, I do remember being quite excited when I was watching this as a child, thinking what was going to happen. For for all for all the issues that may be discussed in terms of the match quality or even some of the decisions made during this time, the overall storytelling is very solid. It it's really enjoyable, and it was still another fast paced episode that flew by. You're not going to say that it dragged that much. Um, I do feel I I, I have I have my comp- conclusion, which I'll go into in detail, but I do think that there's. This is not the sort of SmackDown you need to rush down to watch. I'll go more into detail in my conclusion shortly, but um, I do agree it started. It didn't start off great, and it got better by the end. But the the second half was a lot better than the first. So, yeah, I, I say so as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I like seeing the Godfather get involved, you know, in a major way, but it's not going to come to anything sadly. So, yeah, feel free to give your conclusion now because uh, the only thing we really have left, like, feel free to give you your conclusion now because the only thing we really have left is a uh, our rating and a uh, moment that you, if there's any moment back here that you'd recommend people check out if they had to check out one thing. I think we both know this is one of those weeks you realise we both know what that one thing is probably going to be. It, uh, I was going to say, if you disagree with my one thing, I think um, I might ask someone else to replace me next week. Um, so, for me, I feel, in conclusion-wise, this is a throwaway episode that was more focused on setting the table than actually giving you a meal to enjoy. This is pretty much about getting into the next stage. For me, I feel the only real big reveal was the fact that the WrestleMania main event was going to be a triple threat match. And really... That could have been revealed on e- at either the end of the previous war or it could be revealed on the upcoming war. Apart from that, I don't feel anything was truly gained from this episode. This is not an essential episode. I wouldn't even say it's a good overall episode because there's so much weaknesses to it. Um, I didn't like the fact that Edge and Christian Race did their title shot on a random episode of SmackDown. I don't think it makes sense. It frustrates me with the two of them. Um, so therefore it's a negative. I think the next three matches were house show quality at best. Um, pretty much anything up to, uh, Rikishi versus big show. I don't feel I gained anything in my life by sitting through them. Um, because they are pretty much more storytelling than they are worthwhile match quality. And even that storytelling is purely for the one night, as opposed to, Overall achievements take you on to WrestleMania. However, I will admit to liking that I Edging Christian finally getting their revenge on Terry um, was good. I I thought that should hopefully finally pay off the story. Hopefully allow them to move on. It allowed Edging Christian a moment to show some of the characteristics of themselves that I'm looking forward to being expanded on in the next couple of months. I thought the Backland Kurt Angle versus Jericho and Taz match started off well, even though it ended a bit meh. But I, I liked the storytelling work in that one. I think the last three matches were at least solid. Um, so that's why the show ended better than it started. 
I do wish that all three matches had been given more time uh, because I think the longest match was less than five minutes. I think if those three final matches had been given like a good eight to ten ma- minutes, we would be talking about something that's actually worthwhile to go back to. Um, my overall rating is probably going to be a thumbs down because I don't feel this is worth going out of your way to watch. I don't feel you actually, I, I don't think it's a great episode because it's all, it's all about moving things into pieces. The quality isn't really there for the majority of the match uh, of the show and some of the frustrations override any positives anyway. However, I will say in amongst that deep, dark cavern of um, sadness and uh, uh, disappointment, my favorite moment and the match I am going to recommend is of course going to be the 24 seven hardcore championship match because it was fun. It was ridiculous. It was inventive. It was a, it was a, it was the moment that the show began to get better. It was almost like um, the perfect palate cleanser of the rubbish you'd seen up till then. And it almost gave a shot in the arm to the entire show. And I feel it gave a bit of energy to the later matches afterwards, which really benefited from, but if you're, only going to watch one thing from this show, I would say it'd be the Hardcore Championship match. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I'm trying to think of something else. Maybe you know, most of the matches I'd, I'd, I'd recommend would probably excuse me, would probably end up in an unsatisfactory way in terms of the finisher gets thrown out or be kind of flat. So I'm not going to try and recommend anything else. I'm going to also go with the uh, the hardcore title script because well, ten shows about everything else. I'm something in the middle, but the thumb is in, in like teasing towards going down, but being held up by the hardcore title segment to the middle, uh, also by the fact that you know, they've seemed to plant seeds for a couple of matches that are also going to be at WrestleMania. Some of the undercard stuff is going to be teased, and so like on that string. Like what it should be in the school to me of teasing, like what is going to be quite a stacked card, uh, not in terms of quality, but in terms of just a number of matches. Uh, that's what it should be, also just close out to WrestleMania. And Sam, as before we wrap up, before we wrap up, uh, give people your, your plugs and where they can find you if they want to listen to more of your lovely opinions. Uh, well, if they're desperate to listen to my opinions, they have several places they can go to. They can go to Cultured Vultures, where I can be seen either discussing wrestling, television or film, depending on what strikes me at the time. Um, I am thinking of possibly doing a couple of retrospectives soon on there, uh, more for film, but I'm going to be pitching that shortly and seeing whether or not that works. Um I am now being featured on a website called Women Love Wrestling, which is uh, inspired by the book that I was involved in, where um, the article I wrote for it is now being developed into multiple different uh, articles on the website. It's a fantastic website, which is all about any... any money made from it is uh, goes straight to charities for like rain and women's aid and that sort of thing. So it's a, uh, it's something that I'm very proud to be involved in uh, several of the things that my, the articles are writing about on there is the work I've done about intergender wrestling, which I'm very proud of. Um, I am featuring on a website called film for four, where every now and again, I'll give my choice of the best 
for me, best version for a different subject, such as like the best film I saw during lockdown, my favorite coming of age film. The most recent one I did was the lockdown edition where my choice was actually host by Shudder because it introduced me to a whole new channel that I otherwise wouldn't have seen. And of course, I'm featuring on WrestleJoy, where at the moment I'm currently going through CM Punk's infamous 434-day title reign. Um, I'm not going to lie, it's very strange to have been literally just finishing my edit about a match with Mark Henry as uh, the Hall of Pain, and then going on to watching this episode where Mark Henry is sexual chocolate and was the father of a hand. Um, The difference between the two is terrifying. Apart from that, you can see me on Twitter at Big Badder Bruce, and hopefully next week on here. Well, we'll see you about that. Uh, I think with Mark Henry getting uh, beaten by the does, I do think he's getting written out of the uh, storylines for now. I do believe this is around at the time he does get taken off TV. Uh, go back to OVW for some seasoning and like help get it worked on. Uh, and so, so that'll be the end of Sexual Chocolate for now. But you can find the the brand uh, Rogue underscore Pines. You can find me at Scotland 1996. Uh, coming out very soon, I think it's already out by the comes out me, Nathan, and new to the booking pod, uh, Carl, all fantasy book, our own strange versions of WrestleMania 37. Uh, me and Nathan have a very excitable preview for us me and him who hasn't watched wrestling in a couple of months and me who's been watching quite a lot of it and isn't also isn't excited so you can just imagine how that goes uh, you can find me at Twitter you can find I'll of course got on Paul's Ram Pogget at SBRM and episode just went up talking all things in fact we're going to Hardcore Justice this weekend we have uh, you can find me on Eat Sleep Suplex Retreat at Suplex Retreat they've got quite a bit of uh, wrestling here related content on their feature shows with uh, uh, we, I was on one where it was like looking back at 20 years uh, on from WrestleMania X7. We had a match where we, we think they bring up uh, the, the triple threat you talked about with Rock, Mankind, and Austin. Ever happened on a, a show called WrestleMania matches that should have happened. Uh, the most recent one was Raw after Mania. Next week's feature show, I'll be on that, looking back at the life and career of China. And the following week, we're going to be looking at Dark Side of the Ring in anticipation for season three. Uh, they've also got uh, their show East Star Central. So East Star Central, their their uh, new show and like basically reviewing the weekly TV. I hosted an episode a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I've got Sadie Rafai, the show I host, I co-host uh, about our in podcast fantasy draft, the finale of which takes place after WrestleMania, and then the following week takes into our social medias and YouTube, where we do our live selection show uh, for the new season. And also up on our YouTube, if you can't watch Kits and Live, we're going to do, be doing some uh, previews for WrestleMania's both nights. We've already done one for Stand and Deliver. That's up if you want to check that out. I also write for Culture Vultures occasionally. Uh, I've got my most recent piece went up looking at challengers uh, for the NXT Women's Tie Team titles. I'm also looking working on a piece right now regarding the NXT UK title, and if anybody out there can actually beat Walter for that title which hopefully they will come out in the next week or so. Uh, you know, that all that and all the wrestling this week, you know, I forgot what the concept of sleep even is. <laughs> uh, I, lo- I love the fact that pretty much like half of our goodbye consists of all of our plugs, and I'm pretty sure that took up five minutes just from us two. <laughs> yeah, it is. 
and saying, you know, I shouldn't be involved with many podcasts or here for as far as I am, but I just love, love it. I go for weird periods because of podcasts of loving and hating wrestling at the same time. Also, here on ASTAR, if you don't, if you're not into wrestling, also check out on ASTAR past, check out here on Rugged Pings, past episodes of Rugged Pings, and it stands with other people have uh, co hosted with me. Also, one of the podcasts I recently joined as a co host on, it remains as the Mandalorian pod with me and Carol. We're looking to record a review of episode 6 of season 1, Prisoner, uh, very soon. And that might be out early next week. So those are all your plugs. Thank, hope, thank you for sticking with us to the episode, and hopefully you stuck to all of the plugs. But thank you for tuning in. Let us know what you thought of the episode at Rogue Underscore Pains, as we said. And uh, thank you again to Sam for joining us, and we'll just say goodbye. Until next time. There is one. <laughs>